Have you ever wondered how the separate threads of your life fit in to one big picture? How the individual moments of challenge and triumph connect to one another to form the great meaning of your life? I am Anna Mullins, your Life Story Editor, and I'm convinced that making sense of our deepest pain can help us understand our deepest purpose. In my speaker training program and on this podcast, I help people weave together those confusing, often shameful pieces of their past, revealing the life-changing lessons that create their profound new story. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, where secrets are out and the truth is in. Welcome back, storytellers. I have waited a very long time to have this conversation with my guest today. We have worked on and worked out many professional conversations, partnering on several important titles for the self-publishing agency. But this conversation that we are having today merges, of course, that experience with our personal experiences. Uh, through which we have much common ground, actually. And the magic, I think, for you today, for our audience, is that my guest is also an accomplished radio co-host. So expect thoughtful wisdom and also thought-provoking inquiry as well from none other than Lori Bamber. Now, I have to start by telling you all about Lori. So you know who Lori Bamber is if you haven't worked with her or heard of her before. So let's start here. Formerly Chatelaine Magazine's money expert and a regular contributor to Alberta Venture Magazine and BC Business Magazine, she is the author of seven books. You heard that right. Seven books on personal finance, along with co-hosting CKNW Radio's Moneyline Show and guest hosting the nationally networked Money Talks program. She appeared on television programs across the country, including Marketplace and CBC Newsworld. Since 2004, she has collaborated on thousands of Globe and Mail special feature articles as a writer and a managing editor with Randall Anthony Communications, interviewing Canada's most accomplished leaders about the ways that they are changing the world. No pressure, Anna, at all today. No pressure at all. Lori Bamber is also the senior editor with the self-publishing agency. That's how we met. And her decades-long experience in print, radio, TV, and online media elevates her primary skill set and mission, which I'm going to take a deep breath before I share with you. The skill set and mission, which is helping people tell their stories in ways that connect, heal, and reveal the universality of our unique experiences. Now, there is more, Lori, to your impressive and deeply personal bio that you shared, which we will get to a little bit later so we can make the right space for it. But I wanted to just stop here in order to start here, as you so beautifully put it, at the universality of our unique 
experiences. And this leads me to the first question I really wanted to bring forward today to you. Um, but let's start with a big welcome. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, Lori Bamber. Thank you so much, Anna. It's just a thrill and a delight for me to be here with you. I've been an admirer for um, quite a while now. And um, as you said, you and I have connected on creative projects that um, really felt like they had the power to change the world. We worked through some difficult conversations. Yes. And so I come here with a, an open heart, lots of admiration and um, excitement about what we're going to get up to. Yes, what we're going to get, we are going to get up to a lot. This is going to be such a beautiful conversation. And thank you for sh saying that, by the way, I too admire you to for so many reasons and so much of that will come forward today I think in our conversation but I'm just so grateful to have you here actually and to have the a person who is as open and kind of honest and really leads with feelings and emotions which is unique and it, it's something I do and I don't come across a lot of people who lead with their heart the way that you do so I am so like excited about this conversation. So uh, we're going to start here. We did actually connect online. And I say this often when I meet guests on uh, podcasts these days, I've never even like seen you in person because we met during the pandemic right. and <laughs> through a business that is primarily online, this writing business of ours. Mm -hmm. um, and we also connected uh, on our interest in healing personal and societal trauma. And of course, we connected through the self-publishing agency. But I'd love if you just shared with our audience a little bit about your work with the agency, with self-publishing agency, what you do there, and also how you bring such passion and illumination to your projects with, of course, that connection and healing and revealing in mind that we talked about. Thank you. So there's kind of two parts to that. I mean, I think the first is that I have been a writer all of my life when I was about... Um, in about grade two, I started a journal which was mostly letters to God. And, and honestly, they were like complaint letters to the admin department. <laughs> like, there's a lot of things that aren't working out right down here. I need some help mixing this up. And um, of course, my mom found those letters and was not pleased. Her name appeared, you know, in a number of instances. <laughs> will be the case and um, so that put a pause in my writing for a while but I was a lifelong journaler and in 1993 I um, got an internet program for the first time and I became involved in this philosophy list serve and uh, we all started writing together and it was the first time that I was referred to as a writer and I started to realize that writing was really my first language. Speaking is not my first language. I'm an introvert, I'm very contemplative and I pause a lot. So in a back and forth conversation, I there's just not enough time in the world, right? Um, so I became uh, a writer early on with absolutely no plan to make a living doing that. And honestly, it fell into my lap. I was a financial planner and um, I was writing a book for women. It was meant to be a workbook for the workshops I, I did. And it was oh, because wow. there was just uh, a gap in the materials that were available because at that time, 
money wasn't talked about as an emotional, social, spiritual. Right. It was talked about in terms of numbers. Um, and, and that just didn't do it for most women. After my first book was published, which was um, Financial Serenity, uh, Personal Finance for Women, I had so many men come to me. And I have to say that most of them were artists and say, I'm really mad at you for aiming your book at women because it was exactly what I was looking for, but I felt excluded from that. When I was writing that book, someone came into my office. I had to entertain them for another financial planner who was late for, for lunch. And, and he happened to have a number of books published and he asked what I was working on. And I told him, and three weeks later, I had a publishing contract and an advance and I was out of my mind. That was just wow. something that I never thought was possible. And other publishers approached me. They asked me to write books for them. Um, this was about 2000, so personal finance books were the top-selling books right. in the market at the time. So it was just a very good time to be in that in that realm. And uh, about 2004, I started working with the Globe and Mail, and I think that that was my deep dive into learning to write for today's audiences because I'd started with books that were 90,000 words, and then I'd written magazine articles that were anywhere from 3,000 to 9,000 words. And then I started writing for the Globe and Mail, and they would be like, tell, tell this story in an engaging way that gives the readers everything that they need to know. And, um, oh, yeah, you have 250 words to do it in. Right. Yes. Um, and I learned to make words work hard. When I give someone a book, I understand that I'm asking them for seven or eight hours of their time. Like, oh, as a, so as a reader, you mean? So if you pass a book to a reader, you're asking for, I see. Okay. So in our world, we have, of course, the, we went from scarcity to this overabundance of materials and content and things to consume. And your invitation is, here is 50,000 words. Mm -hmm. And I need a, at least a full day, but potentially scattered across many days. So, of course, that's a huge challenge. Tell me more about that. Right? So it's, it's a big ask. Mm -hmm. And um, with the writers that I work with today, you know, I, I come down heavily on that understanding because if I'm not making each word, each sentence, each paragraph, work hard, into a gift, bringing readers along on that experience, then being disrespectful to the overwhelming demands on that person's Oh, okay. I love this. I mean, this speaks to everything I adore about you anyway, but it's like it, every word is intention. Every mm -hmm. word is intentional. Mm -hmm. And I think, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, it's even more intentional when it's a 250 word article, even though there's less time, we're asking for less time. It now needs to pack a pretty good punch for a short article versus a book, which somebody might tend to read through for a week on a beach vacation, but both again, and I think this is the message that I'm hearing. There is no throwaways here. This is still 
the importance of language and of words and of sharing your message in a way that's meaningful. And that, of course, is what I've seen you gift to authors at self-publishing agency. It's essential that we give what we have to give now, not save it for later. Okay. Let me pause Um, there because I feel like I need to repeat that. It's essential to give what we have now. What we have to give now. What we have to give now and not save it for later. That's huge. Yeah. People have an endless amount of choice when it comes to what we're going to read, what we're going to watch on Netflix. I mean, will you ever watch everything that you want to watch on Netflix? Probably not. No. Um, And marketing has become an enormous part of publishing. I mean, much more than it used to be. There was a limited number of books that were published every year. There was a limited number of magazines. And um, if you were lucky enough to get the attention of one of those publishers or um, be accepted, have work accepted at one of those magazines, you were going to be read by a wide audience. Right. That's no longer the case. It's, It's every copy of every book is sold kind of one copy at a time Mm, to one person at a time. And I'm an introvert. I love sitting here at my desk in my bedroom now because of the pandemic. I shared my office with my husband and finally we just went, no, this is too much closer. (laughs) A wise (laughs) choice. Yeah. I moved in here. Um, So yeah, I, um, I realized that I have these ideas that I think are essential to uh, share with the world, not just once, but a thousand times. And yet at the same time, I realized I don't want to be out there marketing my book. That part of my life is over. I've done years and years of TV and radio and being in the public eye and having people come up to me at Safeway and say, you know, that one random thing that you said on the radio, um, we took that advice and it changed our life. And, and me thinking, wow, that is so nice of you to say, but it could have gone the other way. Oh, okay. Let's let's pause here for a minute because I you just connected to something like in my, I felt my whole body have like a reaction to this conversation about privacy. I'm just going to issue that word because we talk about marketing a lot. And I think in our day and age, and a lot of the listeners are probably thinking, I found you on social media and social media, social media, social media. And I always want to be on social media and put my story on social media and market, 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 market. Now, what you're saying is been there, done that, and we're going to need a new way because I think uh, there can be a trauma in not having your privacy and things can happen when your life is investigated in such a way and spied on in such a way and in a big way in a lot of ways for people right now that are listening maybe this is true for them as well can you take us down that path a little bit and your thought process with when you shifted in your life whether it was a result of trauma i issued that word it's not necessarily the word you might choose but when did you decide that you wanted more privacy Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was, it was slow in, in coming, um, but also it, it had a lot to do with me personally versus the general environment. So um, we'll talk about trauma in a minute. And um, I suffered trauma 
in my childhood and in my teens and in my early 20s. And as a result of that, I had a lot of internalized shame mm. and fear. And so I would do a national radio show and callers would be engaged and we'd have a lot of fun and useful things would get said. And I would be driving home after the show feeling physical pain from the shame I felt around not finishing this sentence, not making this point properly, um, oh, wow. maybe saying this in a way that it could have been misleading to someone. I mean, we were talking about money, which is um, obviously a huge and important topic for most people's lives. So um, I just felt so badly about it that at one point I thought, well, if I don't have a book to promote, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'm, I'm not going to do it for the sake of being out there wow. anymore. And then um, I started working with other people and I realized that they were better positioned to take those messages into the world. So um, fascinating. Yeah, talking about some of the books that you and I have, have worked on. So Making the Love That You Want. Yes, Mike Johnson, yeah. So Mike Johnson suffered trauma as, as a child. As a youth, he suffered the you know, myriad traumas that black men, particularly in the Southern United States, suffer. And he came to our team with this message about self-love. And he is in a better position by a million times than I am to bring these ideas into mm. the world, right? What a privilege it was to work with him and just help make each one of his words work as hard as it could to respect mm. the time of his potential readers. Wow. Make sure that each sentence was its best possible self and that it had the greatest potential for reaching a wide audience and changing the lives of so many other young Black men in particular, but um, people of color, young Black women. Um, there were so many messages in that book that were just absolutely life-changing, but not from me. I'm not the person. Oh, okay. I love this because we've talked about intention in the words and intention in the message, but also hearing this, I can feel it actually kind of through the screen as you're saying it. There is, it's like a collective intention as well to move a message out into the world by way of the most appropriate channel. So looking at someone like Mike, and I agree with you, he's just such a great spokesperson for, of course, his personal story, that seems obvious, but also some of the deeper threads that run through his personal story that we can all learn from and that we have learned from. I learned so much from Mike's story, but I've learned from Gazim's story, another author that we're working on together, which is a fascinating, fascinating life story. It's not even, I don't know if it'll be out yet by the time this edit comes out, but it's, we're working on that as well. Um, I just love this, Lori. I love the intention of sort of bringing the collective, I'm going to use your word again here, the universality of these conversations and themes and using your skills and talents as, let's plug in the word introvert, as kind of an introvert behind the scenes with all of the 
experience and wisdom that you have to shape that message and allow that spokesperson to just go out and sing. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Kazim because, you know, we're really immersed in that right now. And his story is mind-blowing, but um, Kazim, Kazim's audience is everyone like him. It's every refugee, and there are more people on the move in the world right now than there have ever been. And that will continue to explode as we see the impact of climate change. And he's written a book about how we find ourselves when we don't start with an identity yeah. of who we are, right? So I, I can't even begin to put into words what a privilege it is to bring what I've learned in 40 years of writing and editing to these young authors who have these amazing stories. Um, it is, I, I still have a small dream that I will write my own book, but at this point I'm beginning to think, you know, maybe that's a journal entry. Who who cares? Who wants to hear from like a 60 year old white passing woman any, any, anymore? It's maybe other 60 year old white passing women, but you know, maybe not. Maybe. But, <laughs> maybe. Um, but I'll also that- me, also me, I would also read your, so I'm just going to put that out there that you have at least one reader who will commit eight hours for you or maybe longer. <laughs> I will read it twice. <laughs> this book is fantastic by the way and I will post about it follow me you'll you'll know follow Lori you'll know when it comes out but something that you just said really hit me and I want to dig a little deeper on it which is this is about a person who didn't identify anywhere or didn't identify with an a role a title or an, just an identity and had to find themselves now part of your bio I said earlier there was more to your bio, and typically I would not leave this out at the top end of a, of a podcast intro or separate it from your professional role, but it felt really important for me to treat this as its own conversation, and now we've had this beautiful segue from you as well. So I'm going to read another short portion of your bio, which goes like this. She is a bi Métis highly sensitive, and by she we mean Lori, of course. Lori is a bi, Métis, highly sensitive, white passing mother and grandmother, as you pointed out, who is working toward the adoption of they, them pronouns, and of course, equity for all. So I'm going to read that last sentence one more time. Working toward the adoption of they, them pronouns. Now the rest of your bio, and I asked you this at the top, use she and her, but of course we have this work um, towards. So I feel very honored that you've shared this with me and with my audience in this space um, that you haven't fully adopted those pronouns, but are working toward it. So I would love if you can tell me a bit more about that work coming into your own identity and how you came to understand yourself in this way and how that maybe connects to equality or equity for all. Right. So I think we all approach this differently. Um, uniquely, individually. But for me, um, I started as a woman in the financial industry. And you can just imagine the kind of misogyny 
that a woman faces in that industry. And um, it was, it was something, it was like the ocean that I swam in, right? The water that a fish is in. I wasn't even aware it was there and it shaped me in a million ways. And one of the ways that it shaped me was that I became very masculine in my approach to a number of things like communication. Um, and when I left that industry, I had to find my way back to the person that I wanted to be. Um, my granddaughter is on the autism spectrum. And when she turned 11, I started following a lot of young women on social media who are also on the autism spectrum because I wanted to know what she would be facing and um, to know as much as I could in order to help her face those challenges. And I very quickly realized that I had a lot of the characteristics of autism, um, some of the characteristics of, um, of ADD. What is it, Anna, to help me? ADHD, yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of us are making these discoveries about who we are and how we learn differently, think differently, communicate differently, experience differently than other people. But there are these very narrow channels that are considered normal and acceptable. Right? Yes. And I'm just else. nodding. I'm just nodding over here like a big yes to this. Yes. Anybody outside of those channels is eating to be heard, to get their needs met, to be themselves. Yeah. Right? And that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart for each one of those individuals, yeah. but it also breaks my heart for us as a society because we are robbing ourselves of the brilliance and the energy and the gifts of everyone outside of that narrow channel. Yes. Now, one thing, you know, that I have noticed in people on the autism spectrum that I really related to is that I grew up bi and I grew up um, kind of gender non-binary. Like I was a very feminine woman. I wore a lot of makeup. I wore a push-up bra and high heels every day for, you know, decades, um, it was a big part of my identity. At the same time, uh, I didn't have any of the internalized limitations of being a female. I was raised on a farm. I was the eldest daughter of five. Um, there were a lot of things that I was expected to do because I was the only person that was available to do those things. And so I just didn't accept the same limitations when I got into the financial industry. It was really the secret of my many promotions and my success, right. I think, because I just refused to be boxed in. Um, didn't know there was supposed to be a box until somebody would come down on me for stepping out of it. Um, and when I started studying gender pronouns more, I realized that 
when I, if I was to give you a list of um, adjectives that describe me, female would not even make that list. Wow. That's a big recognition. Right? Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, even as an 11 or 12 year old, um, it didn't occur to me until I first heard what gay meant that not everybody was sexually and romantically interested in both men and women. Right. Interesting. Right. And that tends to be something that you find a lot in the autism community because people with autism just don't get the whole binary thing. It's not this or or that. More and more, it doesn't work for me. Um, I think that as a society, we're far too quick to label each other. And she, her, him, those are labels, they're conveniences, they make it easy for us to come up with a whole list of things we know about a person. Mm. The most important tool I've learned in coming to understand and really connect with other people is I don't know. I think I know a lot about you, Anna, but I don't know. I don't know. Oh, that's big. Um, you have a thousand things to tell me I don't know. Um, I love it. I can make assumptions about you, but 99 out of 100 can be wrong. The one that's right might change tomorrow. Okay. This um, is so, this is, this is like huge. This is so big. First of all, just I don't know. I don't think I'll ever say those three words again without it having this deeper meaning now, which is just I know, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. It obviously is inspiring us to ask more questions, but I'm curious that the question that immediately came to me that I would love for you to answer if you can or would like to take a stab at is I wonder if the questioner can ever know or if the truth only exists in the person who provides the answer? Mm. I, I love that question. And I think that, you know, like so many things in life, it's not a matter of finding the answer. It's a matter of just residing in the question. That's great. Yeah. Right? yeah. Living in that question. Um, but I think the answer is, is, um, yeah, only the answerer can ever know, and not even them. I mean, I've done 30 years of therapy. Right. I'm still finding out new things about myself every day. Mm. I've been a lifelong learner. I haven't begun to tap into the knowledge that I'd love to take with me when I go at the end of my life. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to retirement because I've got so many courses to take, so many books, to take, <laughs> so many people to talk to. There's so much to do in retirement. I am so grateful that you shared this. This is um, profound, even in a bigger way than I had even anticipated, based on on just re quickly reading a bio before we get started. Um, but knowing this and knowing that there are these intersections of our identities and who we are, that we may never stop uncovering and revealing and unpeeling and peeling back different layers because every time we step into a new experience we do also learn something about ourselves which then probably either changes our answer 
and or changes the question. And so the message here, I think, and I'm imagining the listeners are getting this as well. The lesson is sort of life is just one big question. It it really is. And it's a beautiful question. That's food for our heart and our mind, really. The idea that we don't know, we're constantly in the state of discovery. We're constantly in the state of curiosity and um, connection. And as deeply and as often as we can be in that state, um, that's the measure of the richness of our lives. Oof. Yeah. Okay. I feel like that must, I, I'm, <laughs> that feels like, I'm like, remind Anna as the host to make this the audiogram moment. That was like a huge takeaway. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to capture that. But yeah, that is the richness of our life is being in the inquiry, being Mm -hmm. in, and I've said, you probably never heard me say this before, but I'll say it again for the listeners. I can't pronounce the word inquiry properly because I had an accent as a child and I've never been able to wrap my tongue around the R. So I always say inquiry, but the inquiry is the richness of life. Mm -hmm. Yes. The inquiry is the richness. This is incredible. Now, you mentioned briefly that you've spent many years in therapy, and we did want to touch a little bit on the topic of trauma. And I think about this, I'm going to be purely kind of assumptive here in many ways, so feel free to correct me on every account. As a creative person, most people that I know who operate in not only the creative realm, but the realm of actually service, creative service outward, taking people's messages and helping them shape it and connecting back to consciousness and being in this inquiry, most of the people that I've met that live in that space or have come to that awakening have really dealt with a degree of pain, some degree of pain and or trauma in order to have accessed I guess the reason to heal, the reason to even be in inquiry at all. So talk to me about just trauma and how it brought you to the fullness of your inquiry. Mm-hmm. So I've been sober for 30 years, coming up to 31 years. That's and um, I won't go into the depth of my history, but I left home when I was 14. I had a child when I was 16. I joined AA when I was 29. Um, You can imagine, you know, an attractive young 14-year-old girl with absolutely no sense of identity or self-worth being out on on her own. Bad things were going to happen. You know, it's just bad things were going to happen. And um, my parents are loving, um, amazing people. But I was born when my mom was 17 and my dad was 21. And um, my mom had five children before she turned 25, three before she turned 20. Um, We were raised in almost complete isolation. Um, So I learned a lot about suffering as, as a child. And when I got to A, it was because I realized I had the chance to have a valuable life or I could continue drinking. And, um, and I realized that if I quit drinking, I would die unless I changed the way I lived and the way I looked at life. At the time I described myself as an optimist, but what I meant by that was 
people are cruel and life is very hard, but I'm gonna keep a smile on my face anyway. Um, I didn't know how to trust myself. I was not trustworthy. I didn't know how to trust other people. And it was because of the trauma that I experienced. When I started looking for healing, I thought of trauma with a big T, you know, PTSD. Um, but I came to understand that a highly sensitive person like me, and you know, your listeners can read a lot of, about that um, on their own, but a highly sensitive person is going to be traumatized by living in the world. No matter who their parents are, no matter how they're brought up. Yeah. And because I was brought up in a chaotic environment, it was just multifold. And I looked to AA, I looked to Buddhism, I looked to uh, therapy. I have spent the last 31 years really learning how to become what I think of as love itself, right? Mm. By the time I go, I want to be 100% pure love and then gone. Wow. Right? Um, That's quite but I started along the way, partly as a writer, because I, I wrote books with um, psychiatrists and um, trauma healers. And I started to realize that it's not just some of us, it is all of us. And anytime that you see someone behaving in a way that doesn't really advance their own interests, that is, that's damaging their relationships, that's damaging their social standing, that's damaging their ability to be comfortable and happy in the world, you're looking at the result of trauma. Yes, thank you. Thank you for saying that. You're, you're looking at behavior that's been ingrained as a self-defense mechanism that was the only option at the time, but needs to be revisited. And two of the things I've learned about trauma and healing my own trauma is that, first of all, it takes a long time. And secondly, it can't happen alone. It can only happen in a safe environment with other people. Mm. And when you share your story, when you write a book, when you do one of your talks, you are creating a safe environment for someone else to revisit and heal from their own trauma. It may be the greatest gift you ever give the world right? Creating that safe environment, being heard, allowing other people to feel heard, to feel seen, to feel accepted. That is what will ultimately either free us as human beings to reach our potential, or if we don't get there, will destroy us as a species. It's literally, it could bring me to tears listening to you say this because, and I know that's when I go, yes, that is my core belief. That is my core belief. I just feel like I'm, I know nobody can see me out there in podcast land, but my whole body feels like it's nodding along right now. Like I'm, I'm struggling even to get breath as I hear you talk because there is nothing I think I believe more deeply and more powerfully than what you just summed up so articulately and beautifully. I mean, that's what having great writers on the show is for, I think, to take my thoughts and make them better. <laughs> that's what great editors do. Um, but yes, just big yes, yes. Thank you for saying all of that, but thank you for sharing that. 
And for the word that comes to mind is actually validating that. Cause I do, I question many times in my own life too. And what I'm doing, am I helping or am I hurting? Am I helping or am I hurting? And I come back to, I have to meditate on that constantly, constantly meditate on that. Mm -hmm. And when I'm online and I see trigger warnings and content warnings, and I think our content, our inquiry, our listening, our sharing, our storytelling is the, it's a gift. It's a gift. And it is like retraining the collective to be able to receive story as well as be the story and share the story and be together. And this concept of just do it together. Don't do it alone. Just come together and do that is so amazingly healing. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I just love it. Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons, perhaps the only reason that I've broken my my media band to be here with you, Anna, (laughs) is because I am such an admirer of the work that you're doing out there, the way that you're clearing a space for women to step into um, their own healing because where there's healing, there's power and where there's power, there's the ability to serve the world. Um, In in doing this, we think we're doing it for us and maybe we are initially, Mm -hmm. but until we do it, the world is going to be caught in this dysfunctional us them um, paradigm where polarization just gets worse and worse and we have a tribal attitude in a global situation where it's killing all of us yes yes right so this is the most important work sharing your story is the most important work healing your trauma and your pain that's the most important work. Yeah, I could not, I could not agree more, as you know. And I do think it, it is, you see it in other people once you know it, when you have that moment where, yes, in some way it is feeding me to be in my purpose and, and validating my core value by sharing that wisdom with the world. But I can honestly deeply say there is nothing that gives me more joy than when I see somebody else share their story. I really could bring me to tears as I'm saying it. It's like, it's life-changing really mm-hmm. to witness yeah. it. I get to do, and the fact that I get to do it feels like who put me in this place, <laughs> who the universe is, has allowed me to be a channel for story. And mm-hmm. that's a gift. And selfishly, I, I revel in it and I love it. Yes. But it really is. It's like move more story, move more story. And what I really deeply believe is because it's moving more healing. It's bringing us together. As you said, it's like, just, just put us back together, grab the puzzle and like position it back where it needs to be. Um, Sorry, I'm getting super emotional about this. It's really something I'm deeply passionate about, obviously, but, but storytelling in general and moving story and being a channel for story. It's something that I'm so grateful that you did break your media ban for me because you are the ultimate channel. Is an editor truly not the ultimate channel in a way to allow storytellers who might be living in fear and might be thinking, is my story worth telling? Should I be sharing this story? And if so, if they've even gotten past the kind of worthiness piece, now comes the, is it good enough? And we have all of that, is it good enough stuff that comes up? 
I want to talk a little bit about, I kind of want to circle back to this role, of course, with the self-publishing agency, but just your title, your identity as an editor. You are an editor. You are a writer. You support with not just editing, but also sometimes ghostwriting, and that means actually taking somebody's voice and writing it for them if they're struggling to really put their story down. So a lot of what I do in the speaker program is kind of making it into a keynote talk. You do that in book form or article form. Um, And then there's something else, something new that you're also adding to your professional repertoire, making your skills as a writing coach also available to new audiences. I could not be more excited about this um, because we're all in different phases. Storytellers are all in different phases. When you have that moment or that calling, I need my story out in the world, you now have you, Lori Bamber, this beautiful editor, this writer, and also now a coach. So talk to me about... uh, where I feel like the the question that's coming to mind is like, what's that entry point for the storyteller to say, do I need a coach or an editor or a writer? Who do I need right now? How can Lori help me? And what inspired you really to make that pivot and add coaching to your book of services? Right. So it comes back to the idea of of trauma healing, right? Um, I think that not every book should be published, but Every story should be written. Um, and Interesting. Yes, because the act of writing is the act of taking ownership. It is the act of choosing the lens and the viewpoint. So if I wrote my life story at five different points in my life, I would be writing five different life stories because my perspective has the lens has changed. And the act of writing in group allows us to not only take ownership of our story, it allows our perspective to mature in the same way that therapy does. So, you know, an example I can give you is um, um, my mom, when I was, was little, my mom was young, she was a teenager, right? She was very playful. Um, one day I was standing with my feet sort of propped against the wall in our house and she walked by me and just kicked my feet up from under me. And I fell and I hit my head on this telephone box on the, on the wall mm-hmm. behind me. Now, I'm sure my mom can't remember this and if she did remember it, she would be absolutely mortified that she did that. She was just playing the way kids do. Mm-hmm. But my perspective on that was my mom wants to kill me. Wow. <laughs> my mom, mom hates me. For, for me, she was a giant. She was my mom. Of course. She wasn't another child, which really she was, mm. right? Um, and so I carried that all of my life. I carried that sense of betrayal, of abandonment, of being unloved all of my life. And of course, it wasn't the only incident. There were other incidents. But now I can look back and see this playful, not mature for her age, um, girl raising these babies alone in the country, no resources, no support. And remember how much love she shared in that playfulness. And how much I was loved in that kind of chaotic environment. So 
changing my perspective on those events changed who I am in the world, how I think about myself as a person, how I think about my family, how I raise my own children, um, how I am with my grandchildren. But also, it also changes how you would write your memoir, for example. So if we think about somebody coming in for coaching, as you said, if they haven't actually healed that piece and or just evolved in a certain way and created new perspective, we don't know which version of that memoir is going to live on the bookshelf. Absolutely. So to answer your question, you know, when do you need a writing coach? When do you need an editor? When do you need a ghostwriter? You need a ghostwriter if you have a story to tell, but you just don't want to sit down and do the work, right? What I do when I'm ghostwriting is interview people. I get their stories. Sometimes I do the background research that's required to support their story and the ideas that they're bringing forward. And I put that into text for them. They've already given me the story in written language. It's not made up of a, out of the universe, right? right? Sometimes there might only be hints about something that they're interested in. And I'll go off and do two months of research on that subject to make sure that whatever they present to the world is as solid and as well researched as is possible. But um, the all of the work comes from them. So you want a ghostwriter if you're willing to pay a fair bit of money to have someone show up and do the work of writing a book for you. Because the work of writing a book is huge. It's huge. really a big deal. You need an editor if you have a manuscript, if you've already sat down and written your book, your story, and now you need it to be its best self. I come to the editing process as the reader's advocate. Um, I want to make sure that there's a clear and compelling narrative term, that each chapter is a gift to the reader, that it both tells the story clearly and compellingly, but also connects with the reader Beautiful. Right? And in, in a way that engages them throughout. Um, you need a writing coach if you are ready to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard and start sharing your truth in a way that lets you separate from it and take ownership of it versus it owning you. Oof, beautiful. Yeah, that perfect summary, first of all, perfect summary. And I think that that was, I mean, I know a lot about this industry and you've even cleared some things up in my mind that I was thinking, at what point would it make sense? I love this. Thank you for sharing that and your work. Before we wrap up, Lori, before we wrap up, I could just talk to you for hours, frankly. Before we wrap up, I was thinking of the story that you shared of falling and hitting your head there and kind of circling us back into your childhood. And at the top end of our conversation, you talked a little bit about your writing journey starting, your own entry point starting with these letters to God letters to God or questions to God, I think they were. And then we really dug a little bit deeper on this. I think that you maybe have always been in the question. You've always been in inquiry in your personal life and your professional life, the way that you interact even with your clients. You come in and say, tell me what you want. Tell me what story you want to tell. And then you kind of work to, to help tell that. I sort of want to end on this note. If you had to write a question to God now, is there one big, deep, lingering inquiry for you? I'm just going to actually end the question there. I was going to keep moving, but is there one deep inquiry that you have? What letter would be written now for Lori? Right. 
So I don't believe in God. don't believe that there is um, one being that can answer any questions. But this is what I want to know. Yeah. I believe that at some level, we are all connected. We are all one part, or we are all part of one great consciousness. Yeah. And my question to the universe, the thing that I hope I will be gifted with the answer to when I die is... How do I remove the barriers? As you and I have been talking, I don't know if, if you felt this, Anna, but you know, when you come to a conversation with a complete open heart, trust and faith in that person, you and I have been talking and I've been feeling this feeling in my diagram, my diaphragm, my diaphragm, my diaphragm that it's almost like your diaphragm is connected to my diaphragm. And um, I can feel what you're feeling and I sense that you can feel what I'm feeling. And wholeheartedly. it is a powerful connection. Um, how can we make that available to everyone on this planet? Oh. That's my question. How can we make that, and I'm going to use, maybe draw on your words here, how can we make that connection? By the way, I'll validate, I too feel exactly the same way. And I often say I read energy or I feel energy and all that. There's many words that we could put to this, but it is in conversation, we connect. That would be the summary. In conversation and in storytelling, and that can be verbal storytelling. It can be eye contact. It can be all kinds of different ways that we connect to people. But in conversation and in sharing, we connect. And the question it feels like is how do we better connect? And I think on behalf of my listeners and myself, of course, I think um, through sharing as open heartedly as you have today, that's one way to do that, um, to heal and as you say, to reveal, to just reveal what actually connects us versus talking about the things that polarize us, such as labels, for example, that you touched on as well. So I love this. I love all the takeaways. I love all the wisdom. I love that you are here. I love connecting with you on story. I am looking forward to all of the stories that we put out into the world together in the future. Uh, Lori, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here today and being a part of Unapologetic Stories and really enriching the fullness of the lives of all of our listeners. Thank you. Gratitude to you. Absolutely. My pleasure. And gratitude to you for all the work that you do. And thanks so much for having me today. You're so welcome. I often love when I come to the end of an episode, one of these edits, and I actually have nothing more to add. That happens from time to time. If you've been following along, sometimes I add my thoughts and other times I think, you know, I learned so much today from Lori. I learned from Lori all the time. As we mentioned, we work together at the self-publishing agency with our friend Megan. And I just learned even more today. And that is, I guess, the beauty of connection and conversation and storytelling. Because in our professional lives, we don't often have these conversations. We don't sit down every day and talk about our childhood or talk about trauma, certainly, or talk about the ways that even our own identity is unfolding or our personal revelations and realizations that we have. These conversations don't come up often. And I think my invitation maybe is to the world is that I kind of hope they do. I hope that through things like 
the speaker training program and through story coaching with Lori or publishing your book if you take it kind of that big and far and wide into the world. I just hope that storytelling really continues on, that we share more of ourselves in a way that feels like we are honoring our truth and our story, but also honoring that mission, that service to really connect and to heal and to reveal. So these conversations aren't just uh, a process as much as a gift to each other and a gift to the greater mission, which is to unite us and to bring us all back together, especially at this point in the world when it's confusing. We don't really know what happened for everybody this past year or year and a half. And so to bring us back together through the power of story, well, I'm not sure there's ever been a more appropriate time for that. Thank you again for listening to this edit. Until next time. Thank you for joining this edit of the Unapologetic Stories podcast. If you're ready to share your truth and rewrite your personal life story, connect with me at unapologeticstories.com for all the details on speaker training, storytelling, and strategizing your way through this one big life. If you've enjoyed listening, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app or Apple Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetic Anna for new speaker training start dates. Until next time, stay brave, stay unapologetic, and keep bringing in your truth.